Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this time together is Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Teacher, said John, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. This passage continues the discussion where the disciples have been debating about who among them was actually the greatest. Jesus used that question to speak about greatness and childlikeness being intertwined. It will transition into a further conversation about children, vulnerable people, and those yet to come to the fold. But the disciples, through Mark, are bringing up another issue that Jesus feels the need to speak into. The disciples report that they had been out and about doing, well, disciple stuff. And they came across somebody else doing the same sort of thing, using the name of Jesus to do so. We are not sure where this person is coming from. He could have been one of the disciples beyond the twelve. We know and will soon see that there were many of those. It could also have been a disciple of John the Baptist, who on the basis of John's endorsement of him, believed. It is less likely to be somebody unrelated to the whole thing who was trying to make a name for themselves. The book of Acts tells us there was at least one cohort who tried that, but Jesus' reaction indicates it's somebody with a little bit more noble intent in this case. The disciples report that they got a bit heavy-handed with him. You could almost picture it being done in a bit of a standover fashion. The timing of this statement is interesting in context, to the point that I'm left wondering if this was a boast or a regretful statement. Could this have started out as a boast, only to turn into something a little more unsavory as it was being spoken out in the presence of Jesus? Just two episodes ago, we saw how the disciples were playing a bit of a fake game themselves in this area of ministry. They were in their own minds the real deal but were unable to cast a demon out of a young child, leaving a father teetering on the brink of unbelief. Then, on their way back to Capernaum, they saw somebody who isn't in their circle actually doing the thing that they could not. They could have used this as an opportunity to sharpen up, to upskill in a number of ways. They could have drawn inspiration from this, that seemingly lesser men could in fact do the things Jesus did. They could have shared their own failed experience with this unknown entity, hoping to draw on what made this person successful when they who should know better couldn't get it done. They could have pointed out or introduced the successful person to Jesus and cheered him on. They eventually point out that success, but only after Jesus calls them to not act so grown up that they get too big for the kingdom. So was it a mistimed boast on John's part? He had a well-documented record of youthful arrogance and intolerance, so it's highly likely. Did he feel good about that boast? Maybe at the beginning, but definitely not at the end. Jesus is pretty straight up in his response to this. Don't shut 
people like that down. In Jesus' wise estimation, somebody claiming his name in such a pronounced way is not likely to bring shame to that name anytime soon. If this person believes what they are saying and believes in the name they are using to minister to another person, then Jesus says, leave them alone, particularly in this case where it seemed to be actually working. The Apostle Paul had an even more radical approach to this. Consider Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, even as I say and read all this, I am aware that this can sound a lot like, don't question it, just look at the fruit. And I'm aware that pastors and entire churches have used this as a catch-all statement to draw attention to outward successes while ignoring important negative elements of their culture. I do not endorse that thinking in any way. And I am aware significant portions of my audience live in areas where this shadow has been cast over the church in your neighborhood. I am as saddened by that as you are, so please hear me out here. Sure, the fruit of this man appears to be that he's successfully casting out demons, while the closer disciples in that short window of time could not. But the context can indicate to us that the culture behind it is healthy. The fact that Jesus tells the disciples to let him continue tells me the heart of the person is good. This person could not get any more endorsement if he tried. But what if we consider the culture of the disciples in this time and compare the two ministry expressions from there? First, the disciples drove a man to the brink of unbelief because they could not facilitate a healing ministry to his son. After Jesus sorted the situation out, he then pointed out the absence of prayer in the disciples at that point. They were spiritually ill-equipped for the ministry they were doing. The absence of prayer among those who follow Jesus feeds into a negative culture. Therefore, we might be able to conclude that this other disciple likely does have a model of prayer that prepares him for the ministry he was doing, particularly if it's a disciple of John the Baptist, as many scholars think. It's interesting to note that the Lord's Prayer in Luke's account came about because the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, like John taught his disciples. Next, the disciples were fighting among themselves about what constitutes greatness and who among them held that title. These guys were beginning to exhibit the negative culture that Paul seems to be writing about in Philippians. Jesus has to correct this in a pretty powerful way, calling them to behold a child in order to see how they are to be with God. This other guy likely already holds that thinking in his heart. He's not around Jesus like the others. He has nothing to prove. He just knows somehow that he has a gift to use in the name of Jesus, and he goes about serving others with it. So I believe Jesus is not merely saying, just look at the fruit. The context and the endorsement of Jesus indicates there is a more noble measuring stick for this disciple in play. Jesus then brings the disciples back to more humble thinking with the promise in verse 41. If someone gives you even a cup of water in my name, they will not go unnoticed. In other words, don't shut that guy down. Serve him. 
replenish him, strengthen him, train him, collaborate with him, cheer him on. Every little thing done in the world in Jesus' name will have impact. So let's reflect a bit on this now. If one of the overall lessons in all this is where greatness in the kingdom comes from, then this passage can show us that greatness comes in the form of collaboration, not competition. There is no monopoly on the kingdom other than that of Jesus alone being king. And anything done in his name will do at least some good, and in most cases, a lot of good. It's easy in the modern West to get a little bit too tribal with our faith expression, almost getting to the point that the way we do things is the best way. There have been at times unhealthy forms of us versus them in the church world, which need not be the case. The classic scholar Matthew Henry wrote this, Those who differ in communion, while they agree to fight against Satan under the banner of Christ, ought to look upon one another as on the same side, notwithstanding that difference. Wherever Christ is being proclaimed, the Spirit will be at work. Even if the preacher gets a bit self-serving, the Spirit will still be at work. Truth be told, that risk is universal, and we as preachers constantly work hard to hold that negative trait at bay. The Spirit is often at work in us first as we seek to ensure the will of Jesus comes out in what we proclaim. And even if the preacher gets a little off point, the Spirit will be at work. Again, that risk is universal because we're humans wrestling with the mysteries of God. I definitely affirm that there are some expressions out there that are outright wrong, so I'm not defending those. But I'll freely admit that as much as I seek orthodoxy with all my heart, I may at times offer a view that's a little bit skewed. But again, the Spirit is always at work. And Jesus calls him the Spirit of Truth, the one who teaches all things. So instead of dissecting every word of a sermon or every act of ministry going on around us, a more helpful posture is to simply look for what the Spirit is doing and saying around and through those things. Don't be quick to shut down the voices or dismiss the ministry of those that challenge our conclusion bias or are in our estimation not one of us. Jesus reminds us here that the person genuinely seeking to proclaim and minister in his name won't suddenly do the opposite tomorrow. You may well be enriched by an opposing view on some things. I know I certainly have. I've also come to appreciate the breadth of what is actually considered orthodoxy and doctrine, and I've learned to interact beyond my own admittedly narrow positions as I enjoy fellowship with other believers. I won't always agree with their conclusions but I will enjoy the enriching journey of going through those for myself. In my neighborhood, we have a 20-year heritage of unity among the churches and their ministers. Every single Wednesday, we pray together. Younger and older ministers, contemporary and traditional, charismatic and contemplative, male and female, all praying and sharing fellowship together. A number of times a year, we all worship together. Orthodoxy is protected, and diversity within that spectrum of orthodoxy is celebrated. The city is blessed with a richness of Christian expression, and the unity between us brings the blessing of God. I can tell you from this rich experience that collaboration with others claiming Jesus accomplishes so much more than individual churches and pastors competing with each other. So heed the words of Jesus here. 
there is no monopoly on being a disciple. Instead, there is Jesus bringing them all together for the good of the kingdom. Refrain from shutting others down. Keep unhelpful criticisms or competition to ourselves. Pursue the greatness of being like a child. Be a person devoted to powerful prayer. Be active in looking to serve others. Even a glass of water to somebody in the name of Jesus doesn't go unnoticed. And look for ways of celebrating the wonderful things being accomplished all around us in the name of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.